live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Friend or foe, Trump's future on Facebook decided this hour. Rate buys risks. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen weighs in, spooking investors. And duck for debris. Don't panic, but parts of the Chinese space rocket is heading back to Earth. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Lots to discuss this Wednesday, including tech stocks' sudden slump, talk of a U.S. interest rate bump, and Facebook may be set to welcome back, yes, Donald Trump. The very latest on the social media giant's imminent decision on whether to refriend the ex-president is coming right up. But first, the bulls are trumping the bears on Wall Street this morning, with tech stocks set to bounce after Tuesday's 2% pullback. Apple got sliced and diced. It fell some 3.5%, while investors fumbled with the fangs Plus Tesla and Microsoft, as you can see there too. Why? Well, fears of future rate hikes created by former Fed chair and current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Yes, the ultimate insider. She suggested interest rate rises might be required if the economy runs hot and inflation intensifies. She later sort of walked that back or clarified, saying she wasn't predicting or recommending any policy changes. But of course, the problem is the signs are there. New numbers out the past hour show U.S. private firms adding 742,000 positions last month. It was actually a bit weaker than expected. But hey, it's a very positive number. But remember, some are also saying we could see U.S. non-farm payroll job gains of 2 million plus this Friday too. Sentiment in Europe also were positive, as you can see, with services sector activity data at eight-month highs, driven by a particularly strong performance in Spain and over in Asia as well. India's Sensec recovering after last month's 2.4% slump. That feels resilient in the face of what we're seeing there. Bank stocks rallying after the central bank announced new lending measures to help steady the COVID-wracked economy. More, of course, on India in just a moment. But for now, Will Donald Trump be back or blocked for good? Facebook's independent oversight board will announce at any moment if the former president can return to the company's social media platforms. Claire Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, great to have you with us. Quick name change there. Of course, we're waiting for this imminent decision. But while we're waiting, just explain what this independent oversight body is and how this is perhaps going to work. Yeah, Julia, we actually have the decision. Uh, oh, let do me we? read you. Okay, uh, great. We do have it. Well, some of that has uh, has come out on the website. They say the board has upheld Facebook's decision on January 7th to restrict then-President Donald Trump's access to posting content on his Facebook page and Instagram account. But this is not a sort of black and white decision here, Julia. They say that it was not appropriate for Facebook to impose the indeterminate and standardless p- penalty of indefinite suspension they say, I'm just going to read this to you because this is, this is all very important. Facebook's normal penalties include removing the violating content, imposing a time-bound period of suspension, or permanently disabling the page. So what they're saying is that Facebook sort of went too far with what it did in banning Trump without a time period attached to that. This is apparently not what Facebook normally does. So they then batted that back to Facebook. The board then insists that Facebook review this matter to determine and justify a proportionate response. They're going to have uh, six months to do that review. So a very interesting decision, Julia, upholding Facebook's original decision. So, so Trump remains banned from the site. But they say that Facebook needs to review the way in which this was done. And they have six months to do that. 
See, that's quite fascinating because I think this is effectively a litmus test for balancing free speech with safety online. And basically what they've said is no tech company, no social media company perhaps should have the power to suppress or to silence an official figure like a president of the United States. And you and I, I remember discussing this at the time. They're saying perhaps that a tech company perhaps overstepped the mark in that regard. And we saw a number of them do it. But at the same time, measures have to be taken and you have to review this in a few months time. They're trying to please all sides. Yes, something that it would seem was impossible to do with with this particular case, Juliet. This is a really interesting one because we see that it was split down party lines. This is a very polarizing subject. Pew Research, in fact, did a survey ahead of this decision where they found, uh, let me just show you that, that uh, it really was split along party lines. Among Democrats and Democrats leaning, 81% uh, felt that Trump should be permanently banned from all social media. By the way, he's still permanently banned from Twitter, which was his preferred platform. But on the the flip side, 88% of Republicans and Republican-leaning people surveyed found that he should not be permanently banned. So it's a very polarizing issue, a big split. But what they've done here... Really interesting. We had, this board is not very old, Julia. It only started work in October last year. It, it punted it back to Facebook. I don't think we were aware that, that that was part of the option here, that they would say to Facebook, what you did, you know, in the, in the essence of it was correct, but the way you did it was wrong. You need to review the process and come back to us in six months. And the fear, of course, the social platform, social media platform said was that they were afraid of further inciting violence in light of the, the capital attacks that we saw at the, uh, in the early part of January. And that was the decision ultimately that was made. But of course, this decision far bigger than Facebook and far bigger than just one individual like Donald Trump for these uh, social media companies. Interesting for the company itself now, because this is a decision ultimately that Facebook made, but they've offset the handling of it and the future of it to an independent body. So effectively, the real winner, you could argue in this, is Facebook, because they've stood back and gone, look, we made a decision, but we're giving somebody else the option now to decide whether we did the right thing or whether it needs changing. It's not our problem. What do we think of that? Well, look, this is something that Facebook has, has spent the last several years batting down criticism that it, that it has too much power and that it misuses that power or it doesn't use it enough. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has famously had a had a, preferred to take a light touch when it comes to content regulation, particularly when it comes to politics. But of course... This all changed, Julia, in the run-up to the to the election last year. There were many, many fears of, of incitement of violence. Those fears eventually did come true with the uh, the riot at the Capitol, and that was when Facebook made this decision. And they, you know, have sort of insulated themselves with this board, saying, you know, it's independent. The decision is binding. You know, we have to do what they say. But ultimately, there are questions around that. The board members are, are initially appointed. By Facebook, they're then co-chairs who, who help appoint the rest of them. There's a board of trustees, but it's funded by Facebook. They have a, a lot of say, and ultimately it comes down to Facebook. This is their company. They get to choose what happens in the future. And I think that's why this decision now is so interesting, because there's two parts to it, as I said. One, yes, they're going to uphold the decision to keep Trump banned, but they're punting it back to Facebook and say, look, you have to look again at how this was done and, and, and sort of review the original decision. So, so they're not letting Facebook get away with the idea that it's not their responsibility. Yes, they're not completely off the hook. And of course, if at some point in the future he were reinstated, he'd now be a private citizen. And they have got more strict limits on what they deem abuse, misleading information, offensive posts and things, and they can be removed. So, um, yes, to be continued, literally, in six months' time. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that.
We're going to talk more about this as well later on in the show. Now, Donald Trump is not yet back on Facebook with interest rate risk, may be back on Wall Street. Former Fed chair and current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen discussing ways to tame an overheating U.S. economy and then clarifying those comments later. Christine Romans joins us now with more. Ouch, Christine, the ultimate Fed insider. But of course, now she's the Treasury Secretary, so she has to be able to talk about the economy. But any former head of the Fed making comments about this is likely to induce a concern. And it did. It's a unique situation, isn't it? When the Treasury Mm. Secretary used to be the Fed chief and everything she says goes through multiple lenses. And look, it also shows us just how addicted the markets are to very low interest rates and uh, the spigot open on stimulus. It's been like this for more than a decade. And any kind of suggestion that the Fed is going to start to taper or even talk about tapering and raising interest rates starts to get a lot of attention. Look, the Fed chief said, and it sounded kind of academic and hypothetical to me, but she said if the economy were overheating, then it would be appropriate for the Fed to raise interest rates. Then she she walked that back and said, well, I don't speak for the Fed. And, and frankly, I don't think that there's going to be uh, lasting inflation. There could be some bottlenecks and higher prices in the near term because of reopenings. But we think that will be transitory. That will be temporary. And we don't expect that there needs to be uh, raising interest rates right now or anytime soon. But just the the academic discussion of of how you cool off an overheating economy was enough to really kind of rattle nerves uh, on Wall Street. So she wisely walked that back here. And I I feel like we're kind of where we started yesterday before those comments happened. (laughs) I know. And then the hypothetical would be okay if we weren't seeing warning signs. Exactly. Gasoline prices, lumber prices, house prices, hints from companies in this earnings season saying, look, we're raising prices and people are accepting it. So the hypothetical now needs to be addressed surely by Jay Powell. It sort of makes the next meeting quite interesting because he's done his best to not talk about it. And now he really kind of has to. You're right. And you're exactly right. The the hypothetical or the textbook analysis is one thing. But when you've got, you know, uh, steel prices and copper prices and rental car prices and airfares and just about everything that people touch it going up, you know, we saw in March you had uh, consumer prices up 2.6 percent. And that's probably going to run, you know, run like that in, in the near term here. We've got numbers today that show a labor market that is improving rapidly. And you could see a huge number on Friday for the job market. Um, you've got some industries starting to complain about work shortages. So is there a wage inflation coming in here down the pike uh, soon? We haven't really seen good wage, wage inflation really since before the last big recession, but maybe this is the time it's going to pop in. So you're right. The hypotheticals are with all kinds of real world flashing red signals. And that's what really got a lot of attention. Yeah, the market may have sat up. I'm sure Jay Powell and uh, the Fed did too yesterday as well. (laughs) Christine Romans, thank you for that. Nice to see you. Now, speaking of rising commodity prices, there's a warning that the world can't solve the climate crisis without more metals for clean energy. The International Energy Agency says stockpiling could be one answer, with the top three producers of lithium and cobalt for batteries accounting for more than three quarters of supplies. Matt Egan joins us on this story. Fascinating, Matt, because you have got countries like China and Japan that do stockpile these metals. But what they're saying is we can't ramp up cleaner technologies if you don't have the component and the commodity pieces in order to do that. Explain. Yeah, Julia, that, that's right. You know, I mean, the good news is that governments around the world, including the United States, are, are stepping up their climate ambitions. But the bad news 
is that there might not be enough metals to make those dreams a reality. You know, we're talking about copper and lithium, nickel, cobalt, rare earth elements, all of which are used to make electric vehicles, solar panels, and wind turbines, the things that the world is really relying on right now to wean off its addiction to fossil fuels. Just look at EVs. Now, we know that EV sales are soaring. Projections are for them to continue to rise. Uh, Tesla, Volkswagen, GM, everyone's into EVs. Um, but what we kind of forget about is that um, the average electric vehicle requires six times more minerals than conventional cars. And the IEA is warning that you know all of these minerals um, they're all vulnerable to price volatility, to shortages, um, because the supply chains are o- opaque, um, deposits are declining, and the mining companies, they, they face some tough uh, environmental and uh, social standards. And, you know, look no further than copper. Uh, I know that you and Christine were just talking about the soaring price of copper. Bank of America warned last week that the world risks running out of copper because inventories are at 15-year lows. That's another metal that's used in EVs. And, you know, here's another crazy stat. The IEA report says that the average, um, it takes an average of 16 years between when there's a discovery of a, a mineral deposit and when production actually starts. So all of this explains why the IEA executive director, Fatih Birol, he warned that there's a looming mismatch between the world's strength and climate ambitions and the availability of critical minerals that are essential to realizing those ambitions. So, Julia, uh, unless production of these minerals actually increases, you know, the climate crisis could very well get worse. Yeah, never mind chip shortages. We're going to be talking about stockpiling and battles now over some of these um, copper cobalt supplies as well that, uh, that the world needs. I guess at least we're having the discussion. We probably should have been having this discussion earlier, but at least we're having it now. <laughs> Great job. Thank you so much. Some fascinating stats in that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. India's delegation to the G7 summit in London is self-isolating after at least two representatives reportedly tested positive for COVID. The foreign minister has been meeting with other top diplomats this week. He is now attending today's meetings virtually. The World Health Organization says the COVID crisis in India accounted for one in every four coronavirus deaths over the past week. Many are blaming Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government for the scale of the tragedy, as CNN's Clarissa Ward reports. As a raging pandemic tore across the country, thousands flocked to the streets for political rallies with hardly a mask in sight. At one gathering, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi praised the turnout. I've never seen such huge crowds at a rally. On that same day, more than 260,000 new cases of COVID were recorded in India. Shortly after, millions of worshippers were allowed to congregate for the end of the weeks-long Hindu Kummela pilgrimage. After all, Modi had already declared victory against COVID. In a country where 18% of the world population lives, we averted a major tragedy by effectively controlling the coronavirus. We saved mankind from a big disaster by saving our citizens from the pandemic. As a second wave of coronavirus ravages this country, those words have come back to haunt Modi. Critics accuse him of putting his political interests ahead of the health of the nation. 
we didn't even ask the question of what we needed to do based on learnings from this last year in the event that we'd have a second wave a second wave was never off the table you just had to look around the world you don't have to be a scientist to to say that we did nothing instead we celebrated a bit too prematurely indian exceptionalism now india's healthcare system is on the brink of collapse with shortages of everything from doctors and drugs to beds and oxygen after years of neglect it was always going to be difficult to contain the spread of covid here in india this is a densely populated country of nearly 1.4 billion people the indian government is blaming the rapid spread on this new double mutant variant and it says that it warned states to remain vigilant Still, many doctors agree that the devastating toll of this second wave could have been mitigated with better preparations and a coordinated response. Assured of victory against the virus, India began exporting the vaccines it was producing instead of inoculating its own population. How much responsibility does Prime Minister Modi bear for this? He's the prime minister of the country. He takes full responsibility for all that we do good and all that goes wrong. Do you think this will have an impact on his popularity? I think as of now what we have seen especially over the last 3 weeks is complete policy abdication and certainly I hope uh, that we hold our government accountable for what we are seeing today. The government has announced a raft of measures to try to combat this crisis including drafting in medical students to help doctors getting the navy involved getting the air force involved but some are saying simply that it's too little too late and while it's not clear what the political fallout might be for prime minister modi people are saying here that this problem is not going away one state health minister warning that there could be a third wave on the horizon Clarissa Ward, CNN, New Delhi. Brazil's former health minister says President Jair Bolsonaro repeatedly ignored warnings about the COVID-19 pandemic and the likelihood it would overwhelm the country's medical system. He gave evidence at the start of a parliamentary inquiry into the president's management of the pandemic. Okay, still to come here on First Move, very smooth sailing. Maersk reports the best quarter in its 117-year history. We speak to the CEO and keep your eyes on the sky. The Pentagon tracks the trajectory of a rocket making an uncontrolled return to Earth. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The US majors are on track for a solidly higher open tech is bouncing back after suffering its worst one-day slump since March. Positive corporate guidance is also helping sentiment shares of ride-sharing app Lyft are set to rise more than 3% after beating on the top and the bottom lines. The company also seeing quote significant pent-up demand for its services. Meanwhile, Caesar's Hotel and Casinos announcing that quote weekends in Las Vegas are sold out for the foreseeable future. Wow. Reopening optimism continues to play out in the commodities market too. Brent crude up for a third day and flirting with $70 a barrel. Copper, meanwhile, flat after hitting fresh 10-year highs. As we've been discussing today, copper also close to all-time highs. Okay, let's bring it back now to one of our top stories. Facebook's Independent Oversight Board upheld 
the company's decision to ban former President Donald Trump from its platforms. But the board also says that Facebook must review the decision within six months. Facebook suspended his accounts after the January 6th attack of the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters. Chris Bell is a professor of sociology and public policy and the founder of the Polarization Lab at Duke University. He's also the author of Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Chris, great to have you with us. First, what do you make of this assessment from the Oversight Board? Well, thanks so much for having me, Julia. You know, this is a landmark decision Mm. made by a panel, a blue chip panel of experts, uh, legal experts, human rights leaders. And and really, it'll set the tone for for a lot of decisions to come. And so I think really what the the real big story here is a victory for, you know, for for this process, um, for, for people to come together and make rational decisions based on Facebook's own principles. Is it a victory for the process? Because a lot of people coming into this were saying that whatever the decision, whether they decided to reinstate Trump or they decided to uphold the ban, you have a very polarizing situation where critics will say, hey, this is suppression of free speech. And those that like the decision would say, you know, President Trump shouldn't have the power that he had with accusations of misinformation and whatever else we want to discuss. Is part of why you're happy with this the fact that they've said, look, we want the six-month review here? And I can quote from the, um, from the statement, it was not appropriate for Facebook to impose the indeterminate and standardless penalty of indefinite suspension. They're trying to please all sides. This is certainly not the end of the story. But, you know, we were polarized long before Donald Trump will be polarized long after Donald Trump. And I think we have to ask the deeper questions of how did we get here? You know, how did we allow ourselves to become so polarized and what role does social media more broadly play in that process? Aha. You've asked a question that I was going to ask. So please answer your own question. (laughs) How did we get here and what are the questions that we should be asking? Because it's not actually just about social media and it's not just about Donald Trump. Right. So, I mean, everybody wants to think that Facebook or Twitter have some kind of magical button that they can flip deep inside their course uh, source code and make all of this go away. And I really wish that were true. But as a researcher, you know, when we've scrutinized the the ability of Facebook to really make far reaching uh, decisions for for the rest of us, what we discover is that most of the things that we think matter a lot, things like echo chambers, misinformation, algorithms seem to have very minimal effect. And really what's creating the polarization is us. It's, It's driven by we, the social media users. So you're saying that the algorithms that mean that people on social media tend to interact and engage with people of similar and like-minded views isn't part of what's fueling extremist views and misinformation. It's simply not what you're finding when you're doing the research. Yeah, you know, surprisingly few people are actually in political echo chambers. The latest research indicates the bigger problem is the growing gap between social media and reality. So, you know, right now, 73% of tweets about politics are generated by just 6% of Twitter users. And that 6% of Twitter users has very extreme views. And this makes all of us feel much more polarized than we really are. So we have to ask the questions, why are extremists incentivized to, to spread, you know, extreme views? And why are moderates, you know, disengaging? Or could we also ask the question of why a Twitter or a Facebook doesn't just identify those 6% of individuals and lock them down? Well, I mean, this is an extraordinarily difficult task. I mean, it's taken four months from a blue chip panel of 30 of the world's leading experts and $130 million to get us here. Now, obviously, 
every decision won't be as big as this decision about Trump. But stamping out extremism is really like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, trolls are going to continue to pop up and there's going to be an ongoing challenge among social media platforms to figure out principles that not only work in the U.S., but around the world. So this problem is not going away anytime soon. So what we're saying is, and I think what you're arguing is actually the majority of us aren't extreme. We actually don't have incredibly strong political views. We don't want to engage in uncivil behavior and activity online. So how did the majority overtake and rule the minority? Well, let's think about it. What, you know, why do we use social media? For a lot of people, it's to gain a sense of status, you know, to gain a powerful sense of belonging, especially for people who are social outcasts in their, in their everyday life, right? But many other people derive status in other ways, you know, through their job, their, their family, and their friends. And so for those people, engaging in political debates is a liability. For extremists, it's a kind of micro-celebrity. And so we have to think about shifting the incentives that generated this problem and look to new kinds of technology to fix the problem. How? Well, I think there's two things we can do. The first is all social media users can learn to see what I call the social media prism, the distortion between social media and reality. And we can do that in a few ways. We can use technology, middleware technology, plugins that we've created in the Duke Polarization Lab that would allow your viewers to kind of see and uh, see identify extremists for what they are and learn how to avoid them. But more importantly, boost moderation. So we maintain a bipartisanship leaderboard where, you know, your viewers can go and see this small but growing group of people, politicians, journalists, media figures who are really resonating across the aisle. They're getting likes from both uh, Republicans and Democrats. And we've also made bots to boost these things, too. So we need tech to kind of help us boost moderates and tamp down the extremism. And what role do the social media giants play in that, whether it's a Facebook or a Twitter, for example? Because there will be many people watching this interview going, hang on a second, they can do more. They rake in billions of dollars every year. They can boost moderation. They can ultimately do more. And just handing off the responsibility to an oversight board is a dereliction of duty in some way. You're absolutely right, Julia. There is a lot that social media platforms could do. Uh, one recommendation which I would love to see enacted tomorrow is to create different kinds of incentives. Right now, we're rewarded for preaching to the choir. The more extreme things we say, the more likes and new followers we mm -hmm. tend to get. What if the rankings that are used, the algorithms that are used to determine the order in which information appears in our news feeds promoted content that is resonating across political divides or across, you know, all sorts of social divides, you know, let's boost the information that lots of different types of people find useful or engaging instead of allowing us to kind of, you know, um, really only speak to our side. I love that idea. But I guess it also depends on consumer preferences and uh, human behavior as well. Chris, great exactly. to have you with us. We can debate this much more and we certainly will again soon. Thank you, Chris. Chris Bell. Absolutely. Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Professor of Sociology and Public Policy at Duke University there. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And as expected, we have a higher open for the Wall Street majors with the Nasdaq on track to break a three-session losing streak. New numbers showing a solid jump in private sector employment last month. Another sign of strengthening U.S. growth. And the post-lockdown bounce will be even hotter were it not for manufacturing constraints tied to the ongoing global supply shortages, especially chips. 
And the U.S. Commerce Department is asking Taiwanese chipmakers to, quote, prioritize shipments of precious semiconductors to U.S. car makers, many of whom have been forced to shut production because of part scarcity. And the world's fourth largest car maker, Stellantis, warning today that auto industry disruptions could last into next year. GM saying its earnings report today that it can hit profit goals despite the chip shortages. However, its shares rallying on the news, as you can see in early trade. In the meantime, shares of the world's largest shipping line, Maersk, up more than 5% after it reported its best ever quarterly results. Surging demand and trade bottlenecks, including the shutdown of the Suez Canal, pushed freight rates to record highs over the past three months. The company doesn't expect that to change anytime soon. It's almost doubling its profit forecast for 2021. And joining us now is Søren Sku. He's the CEO of Maersk. So, and fantastic to have you on the show. You've described it in the past as an exceptional environment and the profits that you're generating look pretty exceptional too. Talk us through this. Well, it is true. This is a record result for, for our company uh, by some margin. So, so obviously we're doing well right now and we're doing well across both our you know, container carrier business, but also our ports business and our logistics businesses uh, is doing well and, and you know, double digits growth rates uh, so, so, uh, so we're clearly, uh, you know, seeing uh, the benefits in our business of a, a booming uh, economy in the world, and certainly very much driven by the the U.S. and the stimulus packages in the U.S. Of course, I mean it's a combination of factors here: delays all around the world, a shortage of ships uh, of containers. Can you just give us a sense of of what you're actually dealing with here, and when you expect freight rates perhaps to come down, or is it still too difficult to say? Well, we're dealing with a, a situation of extraordinary de- demand. Uh, mm. Our customers uh, have, uh, many of them have very strong basic demand for, for, for their products. And then on top of that, we have uh, an inventory replenishing cycle going on, particularly in the U.S. market, where inventory to sales ratios are probably the lowest in, in history. So, so very, very strong demand, more than we can basically carry. And at the same time, we still have uh, bottlenecks that we're trying to to, to unlock so that we can get more, more capacity to our customers. So just too tough to predict at this stage when it might normalize? Well, I mean, our guidance for the year, we, we are guiding that uh, uh, we expect operating earnings uh, to be in the 13 to $15 billion range. And we did $4 billion in the first quarter. So if you do the math, you, you can see that we expect actually you know, to have <laughs> it's quite gonna strong. Uh, con- <laughs> it's going to continue for a while, yeah. Even my maths can cope with that. Um, one of the big issues also that the industry has been dealing with is the blockage of the of the Suez Canal. Just your response to, to what we saw there. It's not uncommon that ships uh, actually ground in the Suez Canal. It happens, you know, three, four, five times a year. What, what was uncommon this time is that it was actually stuck for a whole week. And usually we are able to get ships off again, you know, in, in a matter of hours and then it doesn't really matter. Uh, but but here uh, it had serious uh, impact for a whole week uh, closure of the Suez Canal. For Maersk, it meant we had at the end of the week fifty ships waiting uh, in the Mediterranean Sea and in the Red Sea to, in order to pass through the Suez Canal. Those fifty ships were missing somewhere else, and uh, that capacity was missing. So so it, it had negative impact on our customers and and certainly uh, also on our cost uh, picture. And it's going to take months, uh, really, to to uh, to get everything back uh, back in order. You know, this is an accident, but it also exposed a deep vulnerability in terms of trade routes that we already know exists, but we've never really seen happen in practice. 
looking at this, and I guess I'm thinking with a, a mind to, and we pray it never happens, but terrorism or a, a deliberate decision to block this trade route for some reason. Are, are you planning now behind the scenes? Look, how can we? We need a master plan should something this significant happen again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the the, solu- the only solution that exists is, of course, to to sail all of the ships uh, south of Africa instead of going through the Suez Canal, and that adds, you know, a couple of weeks to to the journey from from Asia to Europe, and, and that capacity has to be found. So we need, you know, we need to have a little bit of excess capacity in the system. But it's not much different from what we're experiencing right now in in the U.S., where ships are waiting a week or longer outside Los Angeles, you know, before that they can go into into the port to get offloaded. So, so we have these, these bottlenecks uh, around the world driven by the very, very uh, high demand that we see. Very quickly, uh, the other thing was your target to have, and we talked about this last time, 50% of operating earnings coming from land-based business over the next uh, couple of years. I mean, as the container business has exploded, that's actually becoming increasingly more difficult to achieve, admittedly for good reasons. But you do have cash. Do you buy your way to achieving that target, you acquire that land-based business. Is that now the plan? Well, I, I think, first of all, I want to say that one of the big uh, positive points for myself, uh, for, our, for ourselves in our first quarter result, is the amazing growth we had in land-based logistics. I mean, we grew revenue 42%, and we also, in our ports business, grew uh, revenue 24%. So really, really substantial organic growth, and we want to continue to do that. We certainly would also... Uh, like to continue to do acquisitions, particularly in the logistics logistics space. And so expect more of that. We shall. Sernsku, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you so much for your time, the CEO of Maersk. And congratulations again on the earnings. Okay, after the break, it's Gary Vee, the obsessive investor, gets his hands around NFTs. But what's the big picture here? Find out after the break. Welcome back to First Move. And to a true first mover, a marketing evangelist who always seems to stay one step ahead. But has he gone too far this time? I'll let you be the judge of that. Gary Vaynerchuk, better known as Gary V to fans, is putting pen to paper in the NFT space. He's selling collectible cartoons, which comes with entry to events he's planning called VCon. Crucially, he claims this project called V Friends is a blueprint for other firms to follow, whether large or small. An early investor in Facebook, Twitter, Uber and Tumblr, Gary V went from building his dad's wine business to owning a media empire. But overnight, he told his 2.3 million Twitter followers he wasn't sure he was ready for today's launch. Gary V, the CEO creator of V Friends, is here to tell us more. Gary, I tell you what, you are a marketing genius because even I was nervous for you watching your social media overnight and this morning. Look, you've described this as one of the biggest a technology shifts, um, a cultural norm of, of our lifetime. But I think for many of my viewers, they're still going, NFT what? Explain what you see in this and what you're doing. Yeah, yeah and, and even your intro, and thank you so much uh, for having me. Even your intro of like, has he gone too far this time? There's only been two times that I've been told I've gone too far. When I wanted to put my dad's wine shop on this thing called the internet and launched winelibrary.com in 1996. <laughs> And when I started this show on this thing called YouTube and told people I was gonna use Twitter and Facebook to build it for Web 2.0 and social media, and now we're here at Web 3.0, 
Look, this is gonna take some time, but NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are gonna be a very important thing for everybody here. And the reason I launched VFriends was to help people understand that it's not just about the incredible art that Beeple makes that sells for 69 million that I'm sure, Julia, you've covered and everybody else did, or the other things they're hearing about these pictures and videos selling for all this money, which collectibles and art are trillions of dollars in our world. That is one part of it, but the smart contract the thing behind the token, kind of like a credit card behind the plastic, kind of like a ticket behind the piece of paper, you're going to a concert. The smart contracts are the big part of NFTs that are gonna impact everyone's lives here and the social digital currency. That blue check on Instagram does mean something, it's reality. Everybody watching right now has kids or grandkids that have bought virtual uh, skins on Fortnite or Roblox or needed 20 bucks from grandma to get something on NBA 2K. Like, this is happening and I know it's big technology. It took me months and months and months of hardcore thinking of like how profound this was, but I genuinely believe it's there. Just one caveat. I do believe that 98 to 99% of NFT projects during this early era will fail as investments because I think a lot of people are looking at it, but that's similar to me as internet stocks in 99 and 2000. Hmm. Pets.com didn't work, but Amazon.com was there, Julie. It was there, and I think some of those projects will be here, but more importantly, the internet changed our lives, and the blockchain and NFTs will do that as well. I mean, I've seen you say that for a small business. And I think making this practical for people is so essential to understand what's happening here. You said, look, it's great for things like memberships, for clubs, for discounts. Why, why do you need an NFT? Why do you need to use this kind of technology in order to do what people are already doing for, for customers already? That was literally the question that people asked me about the internet. Right. Why would you need to buy, buy wine on a computer? I can go to the store. Here's why. When you do an NFT, you can put things into the contract. So Lou's Pizza Shop, if he's watching, Lou, big shout out. Lou's Pizza Shop can issue NFTs and make a thousand tokens, right? So now he sells those tokens. The regular pizza pictures just give you a 10% discount. The gold one gives you unlimited free pizza. But here's the difference. That person that buys it now owns the NFT and is actually after six months if they've had enough pizza or they move, can sell it on the blockchain. Lou gets a royalty on that transaction because you can put royalty contracts under these NFTs. vfriends.com, my project, I'm gonna launch these, there's gonna be initially sold, but then the individuals that hold it, when they sell it, in four years on OpenSea or Rarible or on vfriends.com, I make a royalty on that. It didn't mean that there was any more issued, but I made a royalty. And so you can imagine for Lou's Pizza Shop, when people trade and sell that, it's not that he issued more unlimited pizzas, but he keeps making financials on the back end of the royalty and have to make this point. In five years, we're all gonna have public wallets, just like we have public social media accounts, just like we Google each other. And we're gonna look at each other's public wallets and see what tokens are there. So for every small business, every personality, every intellectual property, the token is also a marketing collateral. The way everybody in business needs a social media account to be relevant in 2021 is the same way in 2025, everyone's gonna need a NFT strategy. 
Well, I'm going to say Lou's going to give you free pizza for life after this. But you mentioned, (laughs) you mentioned, that's not my only observation. You mentioned the wine business. You also have um, a talent agency, for example. How does NFT apply? And are you already going to be doing NFTs for the wine business and for your talent agency? Because, you know, my understanding of this in a way is that you cut out the middleman. And as far as a talent agency is concerned, and it goes back to your point about the art, um, does the talent still need you as a talent agent in order to get get a job? I don't, yeah. I don't think anybody should have anybody in the middle if they're capable, right? So if a talent is capable of building demand and monetizing, then she or he should never have somebody take 10 or 20% managing them. I think you probably know this, I know this, everybody knows this. There's a lot of talent that doesn't wanna do the business side of things doesn't want to do the marketing side of things. So yes, I, I'll give you something. An up and coming music artist, instead of taking, or an up and coming author, instead of taking a publisher, whether it's book or music's money up front, and then share the revenue with that organization, they can now sell to their social media audience an NFT and give them a percentage of the royalties of all their future earnings. That's a, and that's how they raise the money instead of taking it from a publisher. There is very substantial, again, if you look at those early internet videos in 95, 6, 7 on real TV, like this, where people are trying to figure it out, it seems silly now. I think the same thing will play out for NFTs. Right now, I get it, and I'm empathetic to it, and I've, and many others have put in a lot of time, and there's a big shout out to all the OGs that were there in 17, 18, 19 doing it, but we are now in that pre-dawn era where it's going to go mainstream. I mean, NBA Top Shot is a phenomenon that is an NFT, that is a massive marketplace. And you know that Disney's coming, CNN's coming, every, every personality's coming, every author's coming, every TikToker's coming, everybody's coming. Okay, you told me 90 to 90%, 99% of this is gonna be absolute rubbish. I actually had people on the yes. show and he sort of agreed to me that he thinks it's a bubble or it's some part of this is a bubble right now and he may have been at the peak. Um, yes. how, do we, how do we identify, and I have to do this very quickly, you have 30 seconds, the Amazon in 30 seconds, NFT in you 30 ha- seconds. You, ha- you have to bet on the person. I'll give it to you in way less than 30 seconds. Who's the person behind it? And does she or he think in 30 year terms or 30 hour terms? And we want the long term game. That's right. Mm. Gary, come back and I'm going to build intellectual property with this. I'm going to try to do this for the next <laughs> I was waiting years of my for life. That. I'm serious. Yeah, you mean I me? Am. Get Why Gary not? <laughs> Why not? That's it. Thank you for talking to us today Thank and you. explaining. Thank you. Gary V, the co CEO and creator of V Friends. Thank you. And good luck with the project. All right, up next, bad news for those planning a relaxing weekend. An out-of-control rocket is due to crash land on Earth, and not even the Pentagon knows where. Stay with us. This isn't something you hear every day. The Pentagon is tracking a large, out-of-control Chinese rocket that is set to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere this weekend. At the moment, it's impossible to predict exactly when and where the debris will crash down. Will Ripley is tracking this for us. Will, what a story and how worried do we need to be? 2021 was supposed to be the year, Julia, that things got back to normal, right? And now on top of all the other things that are happening in the world, we have this giant piece of 
Chinese space debris hurtling around the Earth at 18,000 miles an hour. The reason why they don't know where this is going to hit is because 18,000 miles in one hour can make the difference. So until it's actually imminently going to collide with wherever it is going to hit, we won't know. Now, the, the odd makers are saying that it'll probably be an ocean, the Pacific Ocean, perhaps, because this uh, part of the world has the biggest ocean. Uh, so if you're going to make a bet, maybe, you know, say it goes down somewhere in the Pacific. But look, there's always a chance that some of these massive pieces of debris, because you're talking about something that is 22 tons, which is about a fifth of the size of the Statue of Liberty, if you're not counting the base, that may not all burn up upon re-entry. There might be large pieces that come hurtling down at very high speeds. And in the past, they tend to go down in the water and cause no damage. People talk about it on social media. There was one incident where a large 12-meter pipe hit a small village, but nobody was, nobody was injured. But just imagine if debris started raining down on a densely populated city, like here in Hong Kong or there in New York. So it's not something that people should obviously be panicking about because your chances of uh, getting injured are far greater when you walk out your front door if you don't wear a mask or if you're going to get your coffee run and you spill the hot coffee or you get behind the wheel of your car. There are a lot of other things in our lives that can do a lot more damage than this Chinese rocket. But it's just one of those stories that, that it brings you into this kind of sci-fi realm. You have the China Long March 5B rocket. They launched up their first module for this space station. They're going to be making more launches like this. They don't expect it to be fully operational until the end of 2022. So we don't know what's going to happen this weekend. It could, the arrival could be either on Saturday the 8th or Sunday the 9th or even, Julia, Monday, May 10th which happens to be my 40th birthday. So I'm, you know, part of me is thinking that maybe it'll just come raining down on me. Cause it's like, I feel like, isn't that what, you know, this midlife thing is all about. You just start to realize all the stuff that's coming back down. Fireworks, fireworks for your birthday. It's gonna break up in the atmosphere, Will, and you'll be sparkled <laughs> with light on your 30, 40th birthday. That's a nice birthday. way of looking at it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And happy birthday for Monday. Okay. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe, please. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.